Welcome to the Resourceful HDR podcast. I'm Sally Purcell, and in this podcast, I explore high-degree research, HDR, career and employment experiences, how individuals have made career decisions, navigated transitions, and helped others to build a career. In Australia, HDR usually includes Master of Research, PhDs, and Professional Doctorates. I hope you enjoy this podcast. My guest today on the Resourceful HDR podcast is Gillian Smith. Gillian is a PhD candidate in Ancient History, and her thesis project is The Relationship of Content and Placement in the Art, Architecture and Space of the Hyperstyle Hall at the Ancient Egyptian Karnak Temple. In September, Gillian won the Macquarie University 3MT competition and subsequently travelled to Brisbane to compete in the 2019 Asia-Pacific 3MT competition at the University of Queensland. Gillian was one of 56 finalists from universities across Australia, New Zealand, Oceania, Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia, where she won the People's Choice Award. After completing her bachelor's degree in ancient history and philosophy at the University of Queensland, Gillian completed her Master of Research at Macquarie in 2016 with her thesis exploring the archaeology and 20th century excavation of Karnak Temple. Gillian has been a team member of Macquarie's Theban Tombs Project, excavating and recording tombs in Luxor in Egypt, and now works as an education officer at the Macquarie University Museum of Ancient Cultures, running curriculum-led workshops for primary and secondary students across Sydney. In this role, she has also represented the Museum and the Department of Ancient History on roadshows to regional New South Wales with Macquarie's Widening Participation Unit. Thanks for joining me today, Gillian. Thank you for having me. So my first question to you is what led you to do a PhD and what did you wish you had known before you commenced it? Well, doing a PhD has kind of always been on my mind in that when I first discovered that Egyptology was a discipline of its own, where it's you didn't just have to do ancient history, but Egyptology was your job title. I'm going to give you the long story. <laughs> so I was probably in year 11 or year 12 when I found that out. And as soon as I discovered that Egyptology was this whole discipline of itself, I toddled off to my careers advisor and said, I'm going to be an Egyptologist. And she was like, well, I've never had anyone come to me with that before. So then after a quick Google, we found a university over in America that did Egyptology and just sent out a random email to whoever the contact person at the bottom of the page was. Got a wonderful email back from them where they sort of laid it all out, where it was like, go do this for an undergraduate degree, study these sorts of subjects, go do a master's, then you can finally do, like enter a PhD program and that's how you become an Egyptologist, which I now know that being an Egyptologist isn't just having a PhD and that the PhD is, you know, to some extent irrelevant. So then I entered university with that in mind, saying, I'm going to be an Egyptologist, so I'm going to have a PhD at some point. So that was always my plan. And then I kind of got to the end of my MRes and I wasn't so sure about it anymore. I really enjoyed my MRes, like every aspect of it was great, but I was very unsure whether I wanted to jump straight into it or not, like whether I wanted to take some time off, go get some life experience, etc. And then at the end of the day, though, I got the offer and it kind of felt right. Like there was nothing else that was getting me as excited. Like I was applying for some jobs and I was like, oh, that'll be fine. Like that would be good. But this is what excited me. So then I stuck to it, and here we are today. <laughs> when I first started in this role four and a half years ago or so, 
I read, and I can't tell you who it was, but mm. it was a professor somewhere, sometime, that he suggested you only do a PhD if there was nothing else you wanted to do. Like it yeah. was the thing you had to do. Yeah. And I thought what great advice it was because really you can't ever do anything to say this will lead me here, yeah. but to do it for its own sake. Yes. You know, I, I did visual arts and that's, I would do that again tomorrow because that was the thing I most wanted to do. Mm. My mother said, what will you do with that? I said, I don't care, I'm young. Mm. And I don't regret that because it was just such a joyful period. Definitely. And I think doing a PhD too is something that you're not going to enjoy it at all unless you enjoy it at the beginning. Like if you aren't in love with it at the beginning, I don't think that you're going to fall more in love with it because it doesn't get easier. It gets harder the deeper you are into it. So if you're not happy in the, at the beginning or it doesn't excite you, then wait. There's nothing, like, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing it a little bit later. Like, you don't have to do it all. Like, just because you do the MRES doesn't mean you have to jump straight into the PhD. Mm. Although I know that... You did it. Yeah, yeah, like, that, like it worked for me. Mm. But it, it doesn't necessarily for everyone. You still gave yourself some time to consider, though, and mm. then you said, no, this feels right, and it has been the right decision for yeah. you. Even if you'd started it, it wouldn't have stopped you saying, well, I need a leave of absence. So there's that side to yeah. it as well. Exactly. Like, it's not a race yeah, to the end. Right. Or it's not a <laughs> sentence, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You can have some control. So is that one of the things when I ask that you feel you would like to tell others that just make sure it's something that you're really excited about? Yeah, I think so that you want to do it then because the other thing you do have to take into consideration is that you can't because it is research and you want it to be relevant you can't sit on this idea for too long <laughs> that's right <laughs> otherwise someone might come in and yeah, do it <laughs> that's right or, or perhaps the other side of that is sometimes like any procrastination you know sometimes you procrastinate and go oh no, I shouldn't have procrastinated. Yes. Other times you procrastinate, and that's not necessarily the right word. I think procrastinating is always a bad thing. And you discover that your idea evolved in that time. Yeah. And so you're sort of glad that you didn't do it immediately. Yeah. So it's always hard to know, isn't it? It's yeah. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. Oh, it is. Yeah. Take your time. Don't rush it. But also don't be afraid to jump into it. And I've been saying this a lot to myself in recent weeks you've got to go to the opportunities. The opportunities don't come to you. You've got to jump off the cliff at some point. Mm, great, great advice. <laughs> Excellent. There is a saying, uh, jump and then it will appear. Yes. And to some extent, I do believe that. Yeah, same. Yep. More and more at the moment. Okay. <laughs> That's good. So you won the Macquarie University 3MT this year. And then you travelled to Brisbane, which is where you hail from, mm -hmm. to compete in the Asia-Pacific 3MT competition where you won the People's Choice Award. First off, congratulations Thank on both. You. Thank you very much. But what led you to enter the 3MT competition and what did you learn through the experience? I originally entered on the advice of my supervisor, Susanna Binder. Thank you, Susanna. At the very beginning of my candidature, I'd gone to watch the Macquarie Finals, uh, really enjoyed it, had been like, wow, this is amazing, was very much in awe of everything that they were doing. Went immediately from that to a meeting with my supervisor, actually, and I remember walking into the room and being like, everyone else is solving cancer, what am I doing? And had this like existential crisis of like, how is my research relevant? Am I doing something worthwhile? A bit of a you know, poor me, woe is me, what am I doing, what am I in life? And she had, she's very good at 
kept talking, that kind of thing. And she was like, no, like you're passionate about it. Your research is relevant. It's not relevant in the same way that other people's is, but it's still interesting and people are still interested in what you have to say and it's still worthwhile doing it. And at the end of that conversation, she was like, you're going to do it next year. And then I didn't do it the following year because timing didn't work out or anything. But she'd always bring it up and she'd be like, when you do three-minute thesis, and then this year was my last opportunity because hopefully I'll submit soon. And turned out it was a pretty good opportunity to take. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly was. Kudos to her for encouraging you. And I guess planting that seed early was probably really useful for you to do believe in that creative brain that just does the work by itself while you're not thinking too hard. Yes. And that's one of the processes that I enjoyed most about it was the creativeness of it. That it was this opportunity where you could think really creatively about your topic and you could be very poetic with your words, which in academia you don't usually get to be. So that was the bit that I enjoyed most. And I remember writing it and it was just so long, like it was way too long. It wasn't gonna be three minutes at all. And I kept handing it to people to try and cross it off and make it shorter. And they'd come back with like, just like a sentence cut off. And I'd be like, but I love that sentence. I was like, but it's such a good sentence. And they're like, yeah, but it's irrelevant. And I was like, but it's such a nice sentence to say. So I had to let go of a lot of things in that talk that I loved. And I was like, but I'm never going to get the opportunity to speak about it in this like very emotive language again. But at the same time, I'm sure I will find somewhere that I can slip those sentences in. (laughs) Well, I think you will because you like to write. Yeah. Uh, You've got the capacity, which I think is a sometimes rare thing. Can you have sometimes rare? (laughs) (laughs) We can now. (laughs) where you can write academically and you can also write, as you put it, poetically in an engaging way, which is a real skill to have where you can present your research to a broader audience and actually engage them in what you're doing and make them interested. And when your supervisor would say, well, people are interested in this, people are. People find Egypt fascinating. You know, they go and visit it, place they want to go and have a look at these temples and the pyramids and so you're helping them understand it in a different way as art and culture remain. Yes, yes which is very relevant in my opinion. <laughs> Mine too obviously. We both have that bias. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Would have been such a wonderful experience. Pushed yes. you outside your comfort zone. Definitely. Twice because you won and then you went to Brisbane. Yes. What did you learn through that second experience I guess? a tough question. The first time I did it at Macquarie, I was, I think that's the most nervous I've ever been for anything in my entire life. What am I, like, couldn't even. I was really nervous. And then the second time I did it, I was definitely a lot more comfortable being in Brisbane. It was a slightly smaller crowd in the mornings before the finals. And my family was there, which was really nice to have them there. And it was kind of like the first opportunity I had to share my PhD with them. So that was really lovely. But I think seeing all the other people from different universities too was super helpful in making me feel more comfortable, mainly because it was like at the Macquarie finals, it was obviously a very diverse, you know, we had people from every faculty. But when you got to the Asia Pacific finals, it was even broader. It was even broader. And there was people at all different stages of their PhDs. Like there was one girl who just started her PhD, which was amazing. And she was, her research will be 
great. So that was really nice. So I think that I learned, I don't know if I, what I learned, but that was, it definitely made me feel more comfortable being in that setting where it was like, we don't know each other. And so it was kind of like this weird thing where I was both in this space where I didn't know as many people, but at the same time I had this comfort zone there as well. So it's a shared experience, really. Yeah. You're all nervous. You're all, you know, competing outside your own universities, yeah. except for anyone at yeah. <laughs> UQ. Uh but th- this is different, so you have that sort of shared experience, I suppose. So yeah. like any of us, once we meet people and they're having a similar experience to us, yeah. we feel more connected. Yeah, and it felt very special too. It really felt like it was an accomplishment. They made you feel like you were someone, which was nice, <laughs> I yeah. guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, when you're doing things at your own university, you might present your research often to other people anyway. Yeah. You know, you're within Macquarie, whereas yeah. if you're somewhere else it does feel like oh I've made it this far yes and I think actually that kind of sparked something I thought is that at Macquarie I did have people from my own department and my own community there people who knew the background of my research who have heard me speak academically before but then here there was this crowd and I mean Egyptology is a pretty small discipline and Macquarie is one of the few places in Asia Pacific that you can probably do it. So I knew that there wasn't going to be anyone in that crowd who knew the background information of it. So it was like, what I'm telling you in these three minutes is going to be all you know. You don't know any more about it. Like, it's all on me to share it to you right now and to show you how great it can be and how passionate I can be about it. So I think that really made a difference as well, to know that this is really three minutes. Like, I only have three minutes to share my research mm. with you. Mm. I don't have all the background information. Recent conversation, we're talking about the value of being able to craft a story to help people to connect with research. So can you talk about what you see are the benefits for researchers as storytellers? I think the big one is that it's an easy way to consume knowledge. And we live in a world that's so fast-paced and the way we consume knowledge and content now is so fast-paced that you need to really be able to connect with people quite immediately. You can't give them a whole bunch of information and then connect with them. You have to connect with them straight away. And storytelling and narrative is the easiest way maybe the most effective way to do that. So if you want to connect with people or if you want to get your research out there or to make your research feel meaningful to people, then you've got to be able to immediately connect with them like that. And stories are, you know, that's what that's what we're all doing in research is we're looking at people and the world around us, no matter what you're researching, and that's all just a story, like it's a narrative. People's lives are a narrative. The way we live is a narrative. So if you can't put your research into that bigger lens, then it's going to be more difficult to get people to connect with you, I think. It's interesting what you were saying before. When you were talking about when you went to Brisbane and you thought, well, no one here is going to be an Egyptologist mm-hmm. um, or from ancient history. And so therefore this is the only time I've got to connect with them. So that was a real experience for you to tell that story to make them think, wow, this is really interesting. And I know after being in the audience at Macquarie, we're all going, oh, we all want to go there now. (laughs) So that was probably a similar experience for those people. Uh, A mistake often 
any of us make when we have an area of passion and an area with some depth of knowledge that we assume that other people will be as interested in it as we are. Yes. And that's, to me, where a story can hook someone in yes. to something they may not have thought they'd be interested in. Definitely. And we had a keynote speaker uh, at the Asia-Pacific three-minute finals, which was Sarah Phillips um, from Spring and Nature. And she was talking about communication of research. The takeaway point was how important narrative is. The way she did it in her speech was she had this uh, beautiful slide up behind her and she basically told us this story about this anthropologist who had gone, we're talking 1800s here, and he'd gone and he'd researched communication amongst different cultures. When she finished the talk, she said, you're not gonna remember his name, you're not really gonna remember where he went, you're not going to remember what he did, but what you will remember is a Polish anthropologist and the story of communication, how important communication is, and it's true. I don't remember his name, I can't really give you the finer details of the story, but it did stick with me and it was because she created that narrative. So when I walked away from it, those key points were the ones that I connected to emotionally. I'm more your consumer of research than a creator. I guess it's a bit like being a sports fan. Hmm. I don't want to play the sport, but I like <laughs> being in the, in the stands. I like that. <laughs> and so that example you've just given, for me, I might listen to that and then think, oh, I might go and Google that now. And that's the beauty of it. It's not that people have to hear everything right then and there. So how do you think that studying ancient history is relevant to the world of today? I think the number one thing that ancient history can teach you is analytical empathy. It teaches you to study people in their context, in the context of their culture, their values, their beliefs. And that isn't just applicable to understanding why ancient people made certain choices or did certain things, but it's also applicable to understanding people today. That we can, we need to understand human actions in the context in which they occur. That's so important for us is actually understanding causes and effects of people and of cultures and of societies. You know, ancient history is extremely relevant because it's teaching you this skill of being able to genuinely try and understand the complexity behind a society, which it is complex, so complex. Yeah. People are complex. Yeah. Everything's simple to you, throw people into the mix. Yeah. There's that saying, history teaches us what not to do. And it's not necessarily that, but it's teaching us how we got to where we are and perhaps suggests ways that we can understand where we're going because of where we came from. But I think to say history repeats its own mistakes or that saying is completely deterministic view of cause and effect in people. So when we were talking before we did this podcast, you mentioned something that really stuck with me, which you were talking about ancient history and how you felt it really taught you different skills. And one of them was the capacity to really get perspective. Yeah. Can you talk about that? I think you, when you study history, you read so many stories about individual people individual societies and then also you're, you're talking about the individual and the group. You see so many different journeys of individuals, of these societies, and somehow it all ends up in the same place here today. It really makes you take perspective on time, on how short time is, 
but then also how long time is, how much you can do in that space of time and how far humans can come in that space of time. And with analytical empathy, where you are looking at it from an outsider, but at the same time, you're in it as well because every moment in history has ended up where we are today. So it's this crazy thing where you're part of it, but you're completely isolated from it as well, which I think is probably every moment in our lives. We're in it, but we also need to be isolated from it to see the bigger picture and how that can all work together. I really like that term you use, analytical empathy. I didn't make it up by myself. <laughs> Where's that come from? Um, I have no idea. I read it once and then have always just yeah, loved it. No, it's great. I like that. You have spoken to me about teaching school students about the artefacts in the Macquarie University Museum of Ancient Cultures. Could you tell me about the experiences that you provide to the students and how do you connect them to the artefacts in the museum? In my role as an education officer at the Macquarie University Museum of Ancient Cultures, uh, which is now being combined with the Faculty of Arts Museum, fun fact, in, in that role, I work with a team to create curriculum-led workshops for secondary and primary school students across Sydney. So we aim to engage students with the material culture and to teach them about archaeology, museums and history. So it's a lot of working with the actual real-life ancient artefacts, which is both very much a novelty and a very cool thing to get to do when you're a kid, and I would have loved it as a kid. But it's also this physical connection that we give these kids with the culture that they're learning about. And instead of this world, this ancient world being an abstract idea that they're just reading about or seeing photos of, they all of a sudden have this object in front of them, which is a product of that world and gives them the opportunity to actually physically connect with it. With some of these objects, you can, you can really connect with them in a very physical way. We have these open ceramic oil lamps and they're like a round bowl and then there's like a section that's been pushed in to create like a spout or a pouring section and you can feel like the thumbprints of the ancient person of where their thumbs would have been and when you tell these kids and you say put your thumbs right here and you can feel the thumbprints like that's how it was physically made they're like their little faces just <laughs> light up but it's because it's such a moment where it's these aren't abstract people and they're people just like us and they did things just like we do, you know. They had families and they had to go to school and they had to learn things and they had to come home and do chores. Like, they're people too. They're not so different from us. Bit of time travel, really. Exactly. <laughs> we were talking before about communication and communication research. Yes. So there are now careers in the area of science communication or SCICOM. Why do you think there is not the same growth in jobs that focus on communicating in the area of humanities? I have a theory about this because I've been thinking about this. Do you love a theory? Yes, and I could be completely off base here. But I wonder if it's got to do with historical documentaries that for so long, history documentaries have been a genre of their own. Like we have the History Channel. And so we've always gotten this knowledge or this information about history and it's not even just history it's very much you know you always have anthropology um, documentaries like we have documentaries about people so we already have that access to the narrative as we were saying before to that academic discipline whereas with science it doesn't translate I don't think as well 
to a documentary that the public are going to be interested in. So for example, when you like Google scientific documentaries, what pops up are not necessarily what we would think as pure science. So it's, you know, documentaries on sport or like one aspect of sport, or it's a documentary on climate change, which we are obviously scientific in nature, but they don't feel like pure science. We don't feel like we're getting that in-depth, true sciencey science. Whereas you do feel like you get that with all these other humanities documentaries. So I wonder if it's got to do with that. So because we already have access to these, this humanities communication, we don't feel like we need you know, a humanities communicator. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of films that yeah. are around the humanities and you know, there's historical drama. There's yeah. all of those things. Yes, I definitely agree with that. And when you watch like a historical period movie, you feel like you're getting the history. Like even I, as a historian, when I watch it, I'm like, oh, well, that's, that's what happened. Like that's the truth. But when you watch something like, for example, a science-ish kind of movie, you're always like, oh, well, they've dumbed down the maths for me so that I could understand. You're like, oh, that's not actually how Alan Turing did that. Like, they've dumbed that down for me. So you don't feel like you're getting the true science or the true maths behind it. So then I think that kind of plays into the science communicators because now we feel like we can get the same narrative and we can get the same energy and the we can consume it fast, but we actually get the true facts behind it as well. Because it's about people, I suppose. Yes, exactly. And then it also has to do, I think, with when you are in the humanities, you're expected to know how to write and you're expected to know how to communicate already. We kind of assume that if you're in the humanities, you're going to be a very good communicator and you're going to be very good at writing, which is sometimes true, but isn't necessarily true. Like you can be a very good academic, but you can be quite poor at communicating your work to people. But we don't expect scientists to be able to get up and speak eloquently necessarily because we're like, oh, but they're in a lab, you know, that that's where their skills lie. So then when you have this science communicator who can do both and be sciencey, but also talk and engage a person, we're like, okay, that can be a career path now. Mm. Makes sense. We hear a lot about imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. and that it is a real problem for PhD candidates, and I certainly hear a lot about that. <laughs> what is your perspective on the issue of imposter syndrome? I think academia is by nature filled with extremely ambitious people. And on top of that, the nature of research is to always be looking for more. Always, it's what's next, it's what's new, it's what's bigger, what's better, what's more. And these two things combine to create this extremely motivational environment. Like academia is, you know, you look around and everyone's inspiring, but it's also extremely intimidating to always be surrounded by these people who are always looking for the next thing or the next or how to make something bigger and something better. So I think that has to is why we get this imposter syndrome. But I also think that everyone in academia, because our ambition is so internalized, it's all it's it's not necessarily competitive. Sometimes it can feel competitive, but it's not really. It's about us wanting to be good at what we do because we're all really ambitious people. 
So then I think that's why it rocks you so much emotionally and mentally is because it's so internalized and I think everyone's probably suffering from it. I can remember once a very well-respected uh, lecturer in our department who has been working there for, you know, 30 odd years said, I still look around sometimes and I think, what am I doing here? Like, how did I get here? Like, all oh, these people are so good at what they're doing. And I was like, oh, wow, that feeling isn't ever necessarily going to go away because you're always going to want to be good at what you do. But I think the other thing, and I said this to someone the other day, and I was like, wow, I need to remember that, is the other thing that people do, don't do in academia is they don't, they don't need to be nice to you and they don't need to compliment you and you don't need, like, they don't need to let you be there. Like, that's not necessary. So when someone is giving you the time of day and when someone does give you a compliment, it's genuine. So accept it and believe them believe people when they say something to you and you know you wouldn't be here if you didn't deserve to be here they wouldn't let you in there's there's a whole range of structures in place to make sure that you can do what they're what, when you're doing a PhD what they're paying you to do and your supervisor too is the other thing is their name is on your work as well they're not going to let you be bad at this like if you were doing something wrong someone's going to tell you and if so if no one's telling you that you're doing anything wrong then you're probably not doing anything wrong so just keep going it's a good point and I I guess the other thing I think I'd said to you when we were talking about this earlier was that it, it isn't isolated to academia a lot mm. of people who have high standards will yeah. always have this level of uncertainty of whether they're good enough whether you know you'll hear people that are very senior great public speakers that yeah. still get nervous and wonder what they're doing mm. there the flip side of that for me is to recognize you'll never be complacent yeah. yes you may always be striving but if you can be a bit kind to yourself recognize that that's actually just who you are and you you probably couldn't live with that complacency oh that's good enough you know? yes so. exactly and no matter what job you went into you'd probably still be like Oh, I want to do a better job. I want to. I want to be better at that. I want to do better. I want to be better. So, yeah, it's, you know. as you say, it's very internal. It's what you've taken with you. So it is important to learn to manage that and not let it yes. manage you. The other part, of course, is that you and other PhDs and everybody really is amongst such a range of incredible people who have done so much and are contributing so much mm. to the world that you can't help but compare yourself to that and yet if you were somewhere else then you're you might be the only person and so it's a very different experience oh 100 and like academia is it's so amazing it's so phenomenal that you're around these people who are passionate about what they do you know you're never going to meet an ancient historian who's like I kind of like ancient history. They're always going to really love it. So you're around these people who have made it their life's mission to do what they're passionate about. And that is a phenomenal environment to be around. Like you said, everyone in like you're surrounded by inspiring people and about people who want to make a difference in the world and who want to educate young people. It's the greatest environment to be in. But that's what also makes it like, oh, so then what am I doing here? you know what? Soak it up. Like, soak it up. I've been trying so hard in this final year of my PhD is to just take a moment and just say, you know, you're living 
you're you're where you wanted to be enjoy it and don't spend so much time being stressed and worrying about if it's going to be good enough. I think it's um, Cheryl Strayed who said you don't have a career, you have a life. And if you're lucky enough that your career is so deeply integrated into your life, then enjoy it. Like, don't stress about it all the time. In any experience, sometimes we're so busy looking forward that we forget to be present, and that's what mindfulness yes. is all about, to actually say, okay, this is good. Notice yes. when it's good. And yeah, when it's not so great, you think, well, I'll get through this. But then, yeah, when it gets good again, enjoy that. Because I think there is a danger too of when something's good, you're going, yeah, but it's good. What's going to happen? Yes. Yeah, yeah. You're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. <laughs> That's right. Sometimes it is just good. So what transferable skills do you feel that you've gained through your studies in ancient history and in particular at the PhD level? I think the ability to critically read, communicate clearly and effectively has been huge. I personally, I have noticed such a difference in my ability to communicate in the last three years because you're so engrossed in reading all the time and you're reading very deeply. You have no other choice but to kind of, by osmosis or something, is to pick out things in writers that you like and to start emulating that in your own work. So I think the ability to communicate, and in a range of different ways, you know, you get to write grants, so you've got to write very concisely and very fine. And then you get to write things like 3MT speeches, where you get to write very creatively, and but also it has to be very clear. And then you get to write your thesis, which gets to be in incredible depth. <laughs> so it's this range of different things. So I think that's what you really get in a PhD, is that you're doing you're kind of playing all the different roles. You're, you get to be your project manager, you get to be the communicator, you get to be the administrator because you're playing all the different roles. That's right. It's like your own little business. Yeah, it, it kind of is a little bit. And at the end, you'll produce a thesis. That'll be your product. <laughs> yeah. And of course for you, you've uh, not only written what you were saying at 3MT, but you've delivered it very well uh, and won those two different awards. And as well as that, you're teaching these school students, which is another form of communication. Mm. So, you know, I guess you've had the opportunity to really experience a real range of communication, more so than some others might have had. Yeah, definitely. But I also think I have very much tried to steer my PhD towards communication because I think that's what I feel passionate about. The other thing with the PhD is that you're the driver as well in the business. So you get to make it what you want it to be and if you want it to be more you know traditionally academic and you want to just be able to produce and to be able to publish then you can steer yourself towards that direction too you're very much in control of what's happening but that comes back to the whole opportunities don't come to you you have to go to the opportunity so you have to consciously be aware of where you want to steer your PhD towards it's not just a ride that you can get on and then it'll just take you to the end point you have to do all the hard work which is another skill that you get and which is completely transferable is to actually be able to motivate yourself to do that and to motivate yourself over a long period of time to do that which I think is probably a very important skill is to be able to actually self-manage. I definitely agree with that and certainly employers really love that you know because you can be put in place and you know I Ideally, you'll come and ask when you're uncertain, which is what you would do with your supervisor, yeah. and then go, right, I know where I'm heading, and then I'll come back and check. 
that's just you know really important for employers to know if they're employing people at a particular level yeah. that they know that they are self-driven yeah. that they're not having to drive them yeah definitely so what's next for you I'm not sure but I'm very open to whatever happens next I would love to stay in the academic sphere in many different forms. I really enjoy working in education. I think that's probably what I love so much about academia is the, you know, you're educating and you're, you're producing knowledge and you're disseminating knowledge. So I'd be very much interested in staying in that realm. I'm also really interested in outreach. I really enjoy that aspect of my job as well. Uh, so I'm very open to what comes next. I would also like to stay in the ancient history sphere as well. And what do you feel you would need in terms of your strengths and your skills? I think I'd really want to work in a team atmosphere. I think to be able to collaborate with people, which is essentially the opposite of what a PhD is. You're, you know, you're in this research project by yourself. You do also get a lot of opportunities to collaborate with people, but I think that's what I'd really love to do next is be around people and to be surrounded by them and to be working collaboratively. So that's really important to me. I think also being able to see how my work is affecting people or to see some, not necessarily physical, but some product of what I'm doing would be very... So some me. sort of tangible outcome. Yes, exactly. I think that's pretty important to me as a person at this point in my life too. Mm. So how would you characterise that though? I guess having done the 3MT, you felt that you got a tangible outcome because you won an award. If you hadn't won an award, would there still have been a tangible outcome for you? I think there would have been. Because it's only three minutes and people know that they only have to concentrate on you for three minutes, they're all paying attention to you. And we've all been up on stage or behind a podium giving a speech where everyone's looking down at the desk or they're, you know, glaring off into the distance. So when you were giving this speech, because everyone only had to concentrate on you for three minutes, they did. And so you could see people and they were like, not, and they'd be nodding along or they'd be like flicking their eyes up to the slide when you said it and you could see them kind of absorbing the knowledge, which I think was really cool. So I think that was, the prize is phenomenal, don't get me wrong, like that's great, thank you. But it's, I think what I really enjoyed about it was people coming up to you afterwards and being like, that was really cool, like I didn't know that. Or tell me more about that aspect of it. Like that was what was really nice, was people were like, yeah, your research is cool. It's your outcome. People <laughs> go, not, a, not obviously that you're getting that um, accolade, but more that they, you're connecting you, and yeah. there is an engagement and people are recognising the value. Yeah, I think so. Hmm. So whatever job that is. <laughs> I think you might even create it as you go. <laughs> job crafted. <laughs> yeah, that's it. We were talking about that. I am sure you will go on to do some more wonderful things, and I look forward to following that. So thank you for joining me today, Jill. Thank you very much, Sally. You have just listened to an episode of the Resourceful HDR podcast about the career and employment experiences of high-degree researchers that is, Master of Research, PhD and Professional Doctorate candidates, graduates and others in the HDR ecosystem. You can also find me on Twitter as ResourcefulHDR and on LinkedIn, Sally Purcell at Macquarie University. Macquarie University students and staff can also access the HDR Professional Development iLearn site. Mm -hmm.